I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is a summer of Eleanor's picks on Writers and Company. Today, the master of the political thriller, John le Carré. He drew on two of his classics, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold and Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, for his 2017 novel, his first smiley book in more than 25 years. I first met John le Carré in 2010 when he welcomed me to his home near Penzance, almost at Land's End in England. I wasn't sure what exactly to expect, but he exceeded it in every regard. His charm and seriousness, his strong political engagement and wit, his sense of style and mischievousness. I knew he would be intelligent, informed, and articulate, but there was something more, a kind of warmth that continued and grew over subsequent conversations. John le Carré died just 10 years later, in 2020. He was 89. But back in 1961 and his very first novel, Call for the Dead, John le Carré introduced a quietly complex character, a funny-looking bad dresser, the British spy named George Smiley. He showed up again in le Carré's breakthrough book, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, and he came into his own in the trilogy, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, The Honorable Schoolboy, and Smiley's People. The BBC put him at the center of several television miniseries starring Alec Guinness. In fact, for about 30 years, it was hard to say the name George Smiley without picturing Guinness's impassive, intelligent face. More recently, there was a movie version of Tinker Tailor starring Gary Oldman as Smiley. Earlier film portrayals of Le Carre characters include Richard Burton as Alec Lemus, the British agent set up by Smiley, who was double-crossed by his own people in the 1965 movie The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Here's a scene. What rules are you playing? There's only one rule, expediency. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? Richard Burton and Claire Bloom in the 1965 movie The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Both the novel and the movie became iconic symbols of the Cold War and of a tough and disillusioned image of the world of espionage. But the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War didn't signify the end of Le Carre's inspiration. In fact, he says it freed him to look at conflicts and corruption in countries around the world, from Panama to Kenya. And after 9-11, he focused on the changing face of the enemy and terrorism in books such as A Most Wanted Man and Our Kind of Traitor. Both were also made into movies. John le Carré was born David Cornwell in Dorset, England in 1931. 
His father was a con man convicted of fraud, and his mother left the family when David was five. He was sent to a public, which means private, school in England, and then studied in Switzerland, in Bern. After his military service, which he spent in intelligence in Austria, he took modern languages at Oxford. It was during those years he began his own career as a spy, though for decades he never revealed that his work involved espionage, especially when he was at the British Foreign Service in West Germany in the late 1950s and early 60s. It was after the phenomenal success of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold that John le Carré devoted himself full-time to his writing, and he produced some 25 books. The Times of London ranked him as one of the greatest novelists of post-war England. In 2017, I went to see Le Carré again, this time at his house in Hampstead in North London, when his novel A Legacy of Spies came out. It was an unusual book in that he turned to something both familiar and quite different. Revisiting the characters and situations of his earlier work, especially the spy who came in from the cold, he created a backstory, well, a side story, and even a future one, bringing it all up to the present. It was George Smiley's ninth appearance in a story by Le Carré, who decided, as he put it, to give him his final curtain. I arrived at his home accidentally early, catching him playing a form of cricket with a couple of his grandchildren in the garden across the road. We retreated to the house for coffee in the downstairs dining room. Here's our conversation. George Smiley made his debut on the very first page of your first published novel, Call for the Dead, back in 1961. He was described by his wife as breathtakingly ordinary. What did she mean? Well, the original George Smiley, to look at, the physical features, were invested in a man called John Bingham, a thriller writer, with whom I shared a little back room in MI5, the British Security Service. And John was actually, funnily enough, not an ordinary little man at all. He was Lord Clanmorris. He was, I think, the sixth earl or something, or much more than that, an Irish peer who had been a journalist and turned into a spy. And John, in his spare hours, uh, because we worked irregular hours, used to sit at his desk scribbling away at a new novel. And that somehow gave me the example of writing. John opened the door for me. I thought, well, crikey, I really could do it. If John can handle it like that, I can. And then there was the question of where did Smiley come from for me? Now, I had a disgraceful past. My dad had been in prison and that kind of thing. We came from nowhere. We had no aristocratic claims. Whereas Bingham, the man I was looking at across the room, was this great Irish aristocrat. And so I borrowed Bingham's features and I tried to invest Smiley with the kind of anonymity which I felt about myself. So that's how he came to be remarkably ordinary. That's how he came, I think it says on the same page, to travel in the luggage van of the Social Express without parents and without provenance. He was just a little man in the street. But you go on to describe him as short, fat, and of a quiet disposition who appeared to spend a lot of money on really bad clothes, which hung about his squat frame like skin on a shrunken toad. I mean, it seemed like you were setting up Smiley as an almost comic character. 
Yes, well, physically, Bingham was. And I was extremely fond of him. We were, we were comrades at arms, and uh, he was also my... In a curious way, in that secret world, he was my proxy father. I was the new boy. He was the old hand. He'd spied during the war. He'd pretended to be an officer of uh, German intelligence. He'd done all sorts of stuff. I'd done nothing. I was virgin in that respect. So, yes, I, I made him, I suppose, a, a most improbable figure. One of the meek who inherit the earth, I think was how I described him somewhere else. The kind of man you wouldn't give a second look to. So I took trouble to make him anonymous like that. I was wondering if his unprepossessing appearance was his cover. Not his cover, his, his nature. And I think that what we're getting into is the reason why many people take up the secret life. For some people, it's a refuge. For some people, it's the comradeship, the sense that you, you, you're, you're working in a good cause, in a secret place, unacknowledged, which in itself is a kind of safety. And I think that Bingham had a little of that. He was naturally extremely self-effacing. He was socially, you felt he was always slightly embarrassed to be there. And he was very watchful. He had a very corrosive eye, a very clever eye, and he excelled in the management of woman agents with whom he didn't consort um, in, in any shameful way. But he managed and understood and befriended them and, and was always there for them when they needed him. You, you titled the first chapter of that first novel A Brief History of George Smiley. And we find out that he's, he's been a diplomat, a spy, he did war service, and then came back to England to an office job that he hates. When you created Smiley and this biography, did you have any idea how important he would be to your writing for years to come? No, but I had the sense of having created a secret companion, a literary companion. Now, I don't claim to sit at the same table as Joseph Conrad, but Conrad had his Marlowe. And Marlowe did for Conrad what Conrad hadn't done for himself in life, so to speak. Conrad did do a lot of things himself. But when he invested, for example, Heart of Darkness in Marlowe, Marlowe became his own, Conrad's own secret sharer. And Smiley was mine. And I wrote that first novel about him. And I thought, yes, yes, his memory, his voice... I can use. Also, he does something else. As an older, wiser voice in my ear, he moderates me as a human being, as a writer. If I'm pressing for extremes and becoming over-emotional on the page, if I'm writing a smiley story, it is somehow he who moderates me, gets me straight and says, come on, uh, less of that BS and a little more narrative. Let's just get on with it, please. But are you likely to get more emotional on the page? I've... Yes, I can go. I think like most writers, I can go over the top and have to pull back. And I look at it next morning and think, crikey, was I drinking when I wrote this? This is too much. Take it down. But that's the smiley voice. Smiley was unlucky in love. I mean, his wife Anne left him for a Cuban racing driver two years after they married. But as we learn from this little brief history, he took solace in being an intelligence officer. 
academic excursions into the mystery of human behavior, and I'm, I'm quoting here. Why was that so appealing to him? Well, by being unlucky in love, in a curious way, it makes the secret world more of a refuge for him. But he endures. I, I, I used to, when I was writing Smiley in those early days, I was also very fond of drawing, and I did little drawings in the margin of a little tubby man with spectacles carrying his horse uphill. And Smiley's sense of duty in those days was extremely strong. So in a rather monkish way, he renounces love or accepts the imperfections of love and gives his all to the service. And in his intellectual pursuits, although I don't think I say it very clearly there, his passion is for 17th century German literature, which is about the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War in Europe was the most senseless, most prolonged, most murderous, probably in post-Christian history. And in the accounts of it and in the literature that emerged from it, I think he found some kind of human mystery to explore. What is, what is conflict for us? Is it a need? Why do we kill? What is the brute in us? And so, in my imagining at least, that was the material he was reading. And I, I didn't think it was proper to lead the reader into realms of obscure German literature that he or she would not be interested in. But, but which, you, myself, which, you, which you were interested but in. But I was interested in. And, and that was good enough for me. And I knew what he was reading. And curiously enough, right at the end of Legacy of Spies, it, he is back at Freiburg University. And we don't know what he's reading, but I know. <laughs> no, he's buried in the archives. He's something. buried in the archives. <laughs> I understand why Smiley became a kind of secret sharer for you, but do you have a sense of why he had such resonance with readers? He became such an iconic character. I almost share the mystery that lies behind your question. And now that I'm facially a bit more known through photographs and movies and stuff, I find myself quite often stopped in the street. And I'm usually stopped by men approaching my age, men, who just want to talk about Smiley. And there is clearly some identification there, which if I knew its origin, I suppose I would play upon it. But I truly don't. He is simply that man with that sense of endurance, that corrosive eye, that sharp eye, and fundamentally a good heart, but a man who is dealing at great pain with moral complexity. I was wondering if that's why you referred to him as an elderly Hamlet. I mean, one representation that helped cement Smiley's status was when Alec Guinness played him in Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, yes. the, the BBC miniseries adapted from your 1974 yes. novel. And you said that his perfect portrayal evoked an elderly Hamlet in the middle of an intrigue. Yes. And I was thinking about this idea of an elderly Hamlet. Yes. Well, I think that was a fair description of him. And he was constantly asking himself in that secret world during the Cold War, what can we do in defense of democracy that is not so bad as to destroy the purpose of democracy, destroy the nature of democracy? How far can we go and remain decent people? And that was constantly the question he was putting to himself. It's an eternal question. And it's not just spies who ask themselves that question. It's diplomats, it's world leaders, it's military men, 
And yes, it afflicts even people in civilian life, lawyers who are defending people they know are guilty as hell. How far can they go in protecting them? And it's, it's a question that comes up in your new novel, A Legacy of Spies. Yes. I wondered, though, because the last time we spoke in 2013, you, you mentioned that Spiley was perfect during the Cold War, but that he had no other life artistically. And in fact, you plan never to put him on the stage again. Why did you decide to bring him back? Well, Legacy of Spies has a very simple history. After we made the television version of The Night Manager, the film industry, the people, the producers, my, actually principally my two eldest sons, we got together and there was a plan, much encouraged by the broadcasters, to make a long-term version of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold for television. One of these really high-value television things. And we sat with successive screenwriters, potential screenwriters, and asked ourselves how we could take The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is a, a livre noir, a film noir, absolutely, uh, with, with very little excursion into human nature and so on, simply a very bald, terrible black story. How we could turn that into six, eight hours of television entertainment. I mean, entertainment in the best sense, that it, it keeps its message if there is one, it keeps its integrity, but it, it also entertains. And actually, we're sitting there, three, four of us at a time, over hours and hours, and I'm now and then invited to orate, which I do, and I make the proposition that, that maybe these actors in that drama had quite other lives that we know nothing about, and I began expanding on them. So Alec Lemus, who dies at the wall, maybe all through his... He's had a pretty scattered life, probably had a lot of women. Maybe he had a child or two. What happened to them? Liz Gold, this perfect lady, as she was played for, by, by Claire Bloom in the movie, <laughs> a little too perfect, perhaps. She was actually a rough communist girl from an immigrant family living up north somewhere. She didn't speak perfectly, as it were, in, in snobbish British terms. She was state school educated. And maybe in her late adolescence, she too got caught and had a child or something of that sort. So we began to develop the families in this way. And nothing came of the project, or nothing has come of it so far. And I think, quite rightly, it will take time to mature. But I came away from these discussions thinking, actually, this is really too interesting to leave alone. And the pleasure of recovering George Smiley, Peter Gwillem, and the rest of the clan... Was, was so great and it was so easy to write about them that it came rather, rather quickly, it came well in my view and I was able to set up with my characters a situation where the past came back to challenge the present and what was the past? The past was a total ideological commitment to the cause of anti-communism what is the present? A space, a really haunted place where we have no ideology the one thing that joins us is a common fear at the moment, where social democracy is being assailed from East and West at the same time, where the Europe that Smiley loves is shrinking, is under siege, and we Brits, of all awful, stupid things, are walking out on Europe just at the moment when they need us most. So 
these simplistic notions were in my head and I got to work on the book and it seemed to write itself quite easily, which is sometimes a good sign, sometimes a bad sign. But It's a bad sign? I would have thought it's always it can a good be, sign. I mean, I can look back on books that I feel now I wrote too fast, gave too little thought to. But this, it, it was certainly to be Smiley's swan song. Arithmetically, he's a very old man. Yes. I kind of look away from that. Where I found it necessary to alter the past of some of my characters, I brazenly did so. Uh, for example, Peter Gwillem, our narrator, in the earlier versions of his life, he had a heroic mother who worked for the Special Operations Executive during the war and died bravely in occupied France. Now, I wanted Smiley as the father figure in Gwillem's life. And in order to do that, I found it more useful that Gwillem should have an, a heroic father figure who had died. So instead of his mother dying, it was his father in the new version. And I did that quite shamelessly. It made for a better novel. And I think those who, who follow me will probably indulge me on it. <laughs> a, a Legacy of Spies takes place some 50 years after the events of the spy who came in from the cold. Smiley and his former colleagues are now old men and long retired from the Secret Service. What does it mean to be a retired spy? I mean, can you ever really retire from that role? Well, yes, I mean, in a sense, I think you've answered your own question. You never do really retire. It's not because you get strange phone calls in the night or people tap you on the shoulder and say, we need you. It is because the, the deformation intellectuelle that takes place when you're doing that work never leaves you. The inside-out thinking. You read the news and your immediate instinct is to try to parse what is beneath it. What is this untruth concealing? What is this half-truth concealing? I think in that sense you never leave that world. And I never did anything important. But I joined that world very early, in very early formative years. My, my first mission is such was about 17 then. Then for my military service, I was in occupied Austria, and I ran very small-time agents into what was then the Russian zone. And then, one way or another, I remained within the intelligence community until I was 31. Now, that's a huge chunk of life. If I'd been at sea during that period, I'd written about the sea. If I'd been in advertising, I'd have written about advertising. But this period gave me uh, an extraordinary cast of characters from whom to draw. Now, not... not people you just steal and put on the page. You can't do that. But ideas of people, varieties of people, possibilities of characters, as they came into my life at that time. Now, you must add to that my really rather extraordinary childhood, where my father, Ronnie, this strange wastrel of a man, very brilliant, totally bent, had an amazing community of middle European people around him, immigrants, during the war, all of them with criminal intent or criminal connections. So there was a real criminal fraternity then to look at. And at that time, I had no particular moral judgment. I just thought that was the way the world worked. My father was at least in touch with the Cray brothers, notorious criminals working in East London, and with Rahman, a notorious landlord who, who drove people out of their houses and so on. So into that... Early community also came 
an extraordinary wealth of characters that, you know, as Graham Greene said, the childhood we have is, is our bank balance, our account balance as writers. And in a sense, my childhood flowed on until I was about 31, because I always sought the sanctuary of institutions. As a child cut off, if you will, from life and not having had a mother to grow up with, I was always looking for places where I would find some kind of shelter. So I see myself gladly accepting a teaching post at Eton, which was an amazing social leap in my head. But also, I knew it would give me some kind of insight into, as it did indeed, into the operation of class and power in British society. And from there into the secret world, I still see myself as a very immature character, embracing these big outfits. And it wasn't until Secret World let me loose in my very early 30s that I began growing up, I suppose. And I hadn't... I have to think of my education as a total mess. And I was in boarding schools from the age of five to the age of 11. But I was going to say, seeking sanctuary in institutions such as boarding schools, it wasn't a sanctuary for you. No, I mean, it was a loveless world. And, you know, the first female embrace, I suppose, you know, came very late in my life. And this is not a sob story. It is simply looking back now in my great age at the way I was encouraged into the world of fantasy, if you like, into the the way larceny, uh, mental larceny, as much as physical, was somehow implanted in me by example and then by the exercise of larceny. It is... One of the problems people have when they're recruiting for the intelligence services is they want people who are plausible, interesting, entertaining, but also with a bit of larceny in them. People who are actually au fond, ruthless, or will, are willing to be if they're given a cause, and will lie their hearts out. But I'd been terribly disciplined. You know, the institutions that I was kept in holiday and term time were in those days very tough. And the whip ruled, and absurd disciplines were exerted on children. And God played this complex part in our lives that God was really rather a ferocious person who would punish us for all sorts of things. It wasn't somebody to love or actually believe in. You can't believe in in something as, as malign as that in your life, not the way God was portrayed to us. So you, you never were a believer? No, religion's completely strange to me. It always has been. I've gone through the motions. I tried desperately at one time to become a Christian. I even went and did a retreat with an Anglican Franciscan order in Dorset and lived with the monks and so on, but it didn't work for me. And now I, I quite independently and no doubt impertinently, I, I, I see... Religion, when it is exercised in orthodox forms as being one of the curses of modern mankind, faith is something quite different, spirituality is something different, but organized religion as we're meeting it in its militant forms, it's really a a recipe for collision and and for for disrespecting each other, and I, I greatly dislike it. Why did you try so hard back then? Well, I wanted to believe in something. And the public school I went to and finally ran away from uh, was very high Anglican. And we had even a recruiting monk who came and inspected us to see whether we were monk material. (laughs) It seems absolutely crazy these days. 
But um, such it was. And my housemaster was a, a passionately religious man, Orthodox Christian of a very severe sort. John Le Carré, you mentioned that uh, the Secret Service let you loose in your early 30s. And, and certainly when you, when you left in 1964, when you were 33, following the publication of your third novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, you said that it was the novel's remarkable success that gave you the financial stability to, to leave your job. But there were deeper reasons, too. I mean, could you elaborate on, on why you left? I left because... I thought that our way of fighting the anti-communist cause was probably defunct. I'd been very disenchanted by my work in the security service when there was this obsession about the British Communist Party, which I thought was completely out of date. I didn't think they were an effective enemy to spy on to such an extent. And I had a, from my, my work overseas, I just had a sense that we were somehow beating the air, that this was, it wasn't going to be spies who won the Cold War. It needed something much larger, and that was indeed the case. You know, it was the economy that won the Cold War. It was the fax machine that won the Cold War. It was the impossibility of containing the Soviet Union at that time as a closed society. It simply couldn't work. The forms of communication were overtaking all these uh, structures of, of enclosure, and then, really, it was, we also bankrupted Russia, and the West did, simply by forcing them into more and more expenditure on defense, until, by the time I went to Russia for the first time, before the wall came down, 88, what Russia had was a kind of Rolls-Royce of a defense system, and no spare parts, and an impoverished economy. You became identified, though, as a spy. I mean, that became even, even, I think, because of the success of your books, more than what you actually revealed to the world or what was revealed Mm. about you. Now you talk more openly about that time. Is Um, it just time? You mean, what did I do? Yes, in terms of what you did. No, I can't talk more openly about that. I don't think any of us really can, for two reasons. Firstly, you promise never to. (laughs) <laughs> which is very simple. And the second is... And never is even longer than 50 years. And never years, is much so longer than me. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the second reason is that if you engage people's loyalty, if you invite them to become, in fact, traitors, to betray friends or country or what it may be, a promise you make is that their children, their children's children, their friends, family, will never know or not from you. And... That must run into the second and third generation. If you think of a small community in, I don't know, let's say Czechoslovakia, as was, and then suddenly the news that somebody's father had spied for the Americans. This is not good news. Most people, whatever the original cause, do not like traitors in their midst. So... That's a very strong reason. Now, there's a third reason I haven't mentioned. It is that I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so you claim. <laughs> well, the more you say you didn't, the more people say you did. But yeah, yeah. that's just the way of life. I mean, it's, it's, um, the more you protest, you protest too much. 
Your new novel, A Legacy of Spies, is narrated by Peter Gwillem, and, and he's a retired spy living a quiet life on his family's farm in Brittany. Until now, Gwillem has always been a kind of supporting character to Smiley's... Uh, yeah, his, his sort of his, adjutant, his lieutenant. Exactly, you know. yeah. Why did you want to give him the spotlight? Well, I wanted a narrator who wasn't Smiley, and I wanted the narrator to be so close to Smiley that he could be called to account to explain things that they had done in the Cold War, because Smiley in the story has mysteriously gone missing. Now, we know it's a novel, so we know sooner or later we shall find him. It won't just be a graveyard somewhere. But in the meantime, they can't find him, and Willem is called to account, notably for events that took place in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Let me just drop in. The premise in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, for those who've read it, is that the circus had been penetrated for a long time by Moscow Centre in the form of Bill Hayden. Now, so the circus is the... The circus uh, being Brit- the British intelligence, in a word. And so that included, retrospectively, it always included the period when the spy who came from the cold was taking place. So if we go back literally to the spy who came from the cold with that information, then we realise that something extremely secret had to be done to contain that operation from the traitors within their midst. So that's the first premise. There's a whole secret house where they kept all the documents and all of that in order to keep them away from the traitor they suspected was in their midst, but in those days they didn't know who it was. And Gwilym was admitted to the great secret. He was one of the few. And he's then brought back to account for, let us say crudely, the death of Alec Lemus and Liz Gold at the Berlin Wall. How did this happen? How did you waste such human life? What was the purpose of this? And we're dealing with the amnesia of a new generation. People don't know about the Cold War, and the new generation of spies are not interested in the Cold War any more than the rest of the world is now. And so we have to resurrect the events and measure them in terms of contemporary morality. You mean you really were willing to throw those lives away for the greater cause? Tell us more about it, because these people have children. So that's how Gwilym comes aboard. And what Legacy of Spies presumes to do is count the human cost of those secret operations that were conducted during the Cold War, count them in the light of contemporary values, if you like, humanitarian values. So in Gwilym is not simply a witness to what happened, but it's a smouldering conscience, an unease, which was planted a long way back. Embedded in, in the original spy story was a, a love story. Alec Lemus is a British agent sent into East Germany. Liz Gold is this young woman, a communist, whom Lemus meets in London. And she gets dragged into these events in East Germany, seemingly by accident. Can you talk about their love story, how it relates to this operation? Yes, in The Spy Who Came From The Cold, Liz Gold is a Jewish woman, a young librarian, and she is used really... As a pawn, she's brought into contact with Alec Lemus, this old spy who's busy going to seed, and she becomes the unfortunate keeper of a truth which, during an investigation by the East Germans into Alec Lemus, becomes fatal to both of them. And they both die at the Berlin Wall 
in an act of treachery committed by a British agent who is still functioning inside East Germany. When it came to writing legacy, when it came indeed to thinking of the human cost of all of this, I decided that Liz Gold was a, from a first-generation immigrant Jewish family, which was in itself divided, painfully divided, with uh, a communist father who was also a Zionist, a complexity which many immigrant Jews had to deal with coming out of Eastern Europe, and a mother who was all for assimilation and much more pragmatic. And Liz was in the middle, if you like, of that dispute that was running within the family. And perhaps to comfort herself or to find some territory of her own, she has a love affair and produces a baby. And the baby is given into adoption. Now that's in legacy, but legacy, that is the expansion from spy. And it is that baby, grown up, who, in concert with other children, comes back to haunt the story and claim compensation and demand exposure. In terms of this, just staying with the spy who came in from the cold, the couple is about to make their escape over the Berlin Wall when, as you say, they're betrayed. And they realize how they've been manipulated and and used. And and Liz, who does she feel most betrayed by, the, the British or the East Germans? I think by communism in that sense, by her own ideals, so shocked to have been brought to a tribunal conducted by the party and then to discover herself a pawn in a terribly complex operation. And she also challenges Lemus, really, and it's Lemus then produces his outburst when he disparages the whole espionage industry. And, and that, at the time pretty much reflected my own anger, I suppose. The Spy Coming from the Cold was written at a time of a great convergence, if you like, in my life, where i just witnessed the going up of the Berlin Wall. We just uh, endured the Cuba crisis at the diplomatic level. That was a terrifying thing to observe. And my own private life was in a mess. And all of those things, I think, brought me to an extremity of anger and it was one of those several disoriented periods in my life, which nobody else but writers have, of course. <laughs> and, and, and was the catalyst for this brilliant book. So <laughs> you must look back on it with a certain uh, ambivalence yourself. Yeah, I think it was a convergence, I mean, a tremendously powerful one for me internally, and it's one that will never come back. I mean, you, you get one shot like that sometimes, I, I think. And my fear after writing that book was that it would be the only book. If, ever, if I was ever known for anything, it would be the one book I was known for, as most writers are finally known for one book, historically speaking. And there was a period when I thought that was really the case, and that produces depression, uncertainty, insecurity. The black dog, as it's called, of depression. You just deal with it. And now, is there any particular single book you think you're known for? Probably, if I were to be buried with one, uh, it would be A Perfect Spy, I think, simply because that, in one jump, it overcame two big secrets in my life. The first was my father, and I couldn't write about my father until he was dead, that was quite clear, and I needed also time to digest the life that he and I had 
had parallel lives, if you like, and, and put it into the kind of perspective where it was material to write about. And the other big secret was the amount of time in my early life that I'd spent spying. And I would, I think, it became absurd to deny it. And, and in denying it, I would have been practically alone because my former colleagues and my heads of service were bubbling about it all the time. So it was really, it was, became silly. Going back to these, these complex relationships in both the spy who came in from the cold and a legacy of spies, love is never uncomplicated in your stories, and it often leads to downfall. For example, in the spy who came in from the cold, Alec Lemus's relationship with Liz Gold has, has a tragic end. Or in Smiley's People, George Smiley brings down his archenemy, the Soviet spy master mm-hmm. Carla, because of his love for his daughter. And in your new novel, there's a tragic ending for the defecting East German woman that Peter Gwillem falls in love with. Why is love a dangerous emotion for you? I suppose, for me, it just comes from childhood, that um, it was dangerous to invest. People ran away, people disappeared. That if you really give yourself, you better look out. There was that kind of feeling, I suppose. That, um, people by people. Act of self-analysis <laughs> yes. is not going on, Eleanor. But yes, it's, I mean, it's not something I'm conscious of doing until I've done it, as it were. And the same thing happens in Legacy of Spies, where Peter Gwillem actually loses his heart completely uh, to a woman who is then destroyed. And Smiley himself knows that Home is a dangerous place that invested love leaves you wretched. It can't be perfect. The only person you know is yourself, if that, if at all, you know. So, yes, it's it's not a it's not every man's view of love, but I think it just grew up in me that way, and that's who I am. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. John Le Carre, last year you published a, a sort of memoir, Stories from Your Life, that you called The Pigeon Tunnel. And the, the title refers to an ingenious mechanism devised for the sport of shooting pigeons. How does it work? Well, I think I was 15 or 16 when my father took me to Monte Carlo. And it, it was really a funny visit. I mean, it was one of the funniest periods we had together, the most enjoyable. He played the big table at Monte Carlo, at the casino, and we lost everything. He had prepaid the hotel, but I remember walking down at two or three in the morning from the high table, big table in the casino to, I think the, the jeweler was called Boucheron, it was open 24 hours a day, and he pawned all the kind of cutlery that men carried in those days. So that's a gold watch, cigarette lighter, um, cigarette case, all those bits and pieces that people flashed. And then he went back in and lost that lot. So he, he gambled all night. And then in the early afternoon, after a heavy lunch, we would go down and he would, I don't think he took part, 
but the English, mainly the English aristocratic visitors who were members of a sporting club that lay just below the casino. And they, also well-lunched, lay on a lawn with their shotguns looking out to sea. Underneath the lawn, there were parallel tunnels and pigeons from the roof of the casino, bred up there in a cage, were brought down and put into the tunnels and they emerged from the tunnel over the blue sea of the Mediterranean, at which point the gentlemen, mostly of England, shot them. Now, if they were wounded, or if they were missed, they did what pigeons do. They returned to the place of their birth, which was the cage on the casino roof, and they'd go through it again. And so it seemed to me at some points in my life a metaphor, an unhappy metaphor, for my own experience of engagement, escape, (laughs) re-engagement. Really, that fatalistic. (laughs) (laughs) A year earlier, before you published uh, The Pigeon Tunnel, in 2015, Adam Sisman published a biography of you, and you gave Sisman access to your papers, introductions to the people in your life, and some 50 hours of being interviewed in spite of lifelong efforts to, to keep your secrets hidden, you agree to this. Why? Well, in the large, I've promised myself not to discuss the biography. The purpose of, of uh, letting it happen was that I had many requests for, for, for a biography. I don't believe in the authorised biography as an art form. People don't know whether they're getting the meat or the fat so I had read Sisman's biography of Hugh Trevor Roper, professor of history at Oxford University, and I detested Trevor Roper for personal reasons while I was at Oxford as an undergraduate. And I read Sisman's book, and Sisman's book enabled me to like Roper in retrospect and to understand him. And when he wrote, one of several applicants, um, I agreed to meet him and I liked the cut of his jib, as they say. So I said, go ahead. I don't know whether biographers are better advised to wait till people are dead. <laughs> but I wanted the living witness, not least for my children. And of course it's true that everyone in age fantasizes and recreates episodes in their lives, consciously or unconsciously. And... Certainly, an old novelist is expert at it. So I thought, since my children were unlikely to take my word alone for much that's happened to me, a good objective eye turned upon my life would be some kind of relief for them. Relief? Well, we always puzzle about our parents, who they really were, who they loved, what they loved, why they did certain things. I don't know if you do, Mm -hmm. but I, I think most people do. And I will have been, in some ways, such a, not by intent, such an overbearing presence in their lives, simply because of the notoriety that's been invested in me from time to time, that I would like a more banal description of my life <laughs> to be available to them, and that's what we have. Because you, you describe in, in your own essay about your father actually hiring detectives to, to I, do... I hired detectives to try and find out what he had done, really what he had done, because we had, my brother and I, we had such extraordinary experiences of him being thrown out of houses by bailiffs, 
his disappearances, where he was, what he was up to, how much he was on the run from the police and those things. And it seemed to me that that was a body of research that was better undertaken by somebody with police experience, because, of course, there were police records and court records. And that was a flop. They were useless and very expensive. Um, you say they dined well but came back with nothing. <laughs> that's right, exactly. And, and, and Sisman, on the other hand, was surprisingly successful in some regards. I mean, for instance, on one occasion I paid money through the British Embassy in Jakarta to get my dad out of jail. And he always told me there was a misunderstanding about currency and that he'd been caught dealing on the currency market illegally. But it wasn't so. He was actually doing caught doing some illegal gun running, which did take me by surprise. So, I was going to ask yeah, you, did, so if you learned, did you learn much from the biography? From Sisman's book? No. I mean, otherwise, how could I? You know, I'm the last person to know whether it's any good. But I was, I was just interested that he dug that up. I think probably I almost feel that's the only piece of information I took away from it. In, in the Pigeon Tunnel, you write about two trips you made to Russia. The, the first was in 1987-88, in two years before the fall of the Berlin Wall, when, as you say, the life of the Soviet Union was ebbing away and mm. everyone except the CIA knew it. And it was during Gorbachev's time. Had you tried to travel to Russia earlier? I mean, given your interest in that part um, of the world. No, I had not. I knew that I it would be too complicated. I, I didn't know whether my former employers would approve of that. But I really didn't trust myself there. And then our British ambassador in Moscow made an approach to Raisa Gorbachev, just apropos of gestures of openness that went with the period of Perestroika and Glasnost, preceding the wall coming down. And I went and picked up my visa from the he called himself a cultural attaché at the, what was still the Soviet embassy. He said, Crikey, well, if, if they have you, they'll have anybody, he said in despair. But it wasn't comfortable. I took my own interpreter, which still didn't protect me from stupid forms of, of harassment. So the moment I arrived, my luggage had gone missing. And I wasn't allowed to stay in a dollar hotel, only in a ruble hotel. And I stayed on the top floor in a a much too big suite that was, I'm sure was bristling with microphones and cameras and everything. Every time I left my suite, all my stuff was turned over. And I had two really rather endearing watchers for close surveillance who went who followed me everywhere without a word. And one night, there was a, a very nice Russian Jewish dissident correspondent, journalist, who had a kind of fool's license from Gorbachev to criticize the government, Arkady Vaksberg. And Arkady took me out to his house in the dark suburbs of Moscow. You have to imagine a city with no neon lighting, no nothing, pitch dark. And he got absolutely drunk, speechless drunk, lay on the floor. And I wanted to get back to my hotel. And I didn't know where I was from Adam. And I speak no Russian. And I stepped into the pitch dark, and to my relief, I saw these guys. I called them Matsky and Jevsky, sitting on a bench. And I went over to them and said, making a gesture, I am very drunk, but I want to go back and sleep, made a sleep gesture. Parlez-vous français? No. Schweinze Deutsch? No. Niet. So, come on then. 
and I put out my two arms. They walked either side of me down a long, long boulevard, as they call them, kind of Grass Avenue to the center of Moscow. And we finished up at Hotel Minsk, where I was staying. And so on the doorstep, I said, you want to come up and have a quick wet? But no, no joy. But the following night, my brother, Rupert, alas, now dead, who was bureau chief of the independent newspaper, he and a bunch of journalists invited me to dinner. So we went to dinner in a cooperative restaurant, just starting. And Matsky and Jevsky sat at another table. So I sent over a bottle of vodka. Nothing was said. At the end of the evening, they followed the wrong brother home. (laughs) (laughs) The Wild East is a story about your second trip to Russia in 1993 when Boris Yeltsin is in charge and communism is finished. And as you say, organized crime has gone viral. You wrote three novels about post-communist Russia and its gang-ruled criminal activity, Mm. extortion and and money laundering, Our Game, Single and Single, and Our Kind of Traitor. What kept drawing you back to this subject? Well, I think the failure of the West, the complete failure of the West. We had no idea what to do. We had no appetite to do it once the wall came down. There was no Marshall Plan. There was no great leader to enunciate the new vision of the world where conflict would be reduced. Instead of that, it was a kind of long after-lunch sleep of the West where they thought that capitalism had won the world. And capitalism was right. There was a huge carpet-bagging movement. Go and get what they could from the carcass of Russia. Huge acts of theft and peculation were enacted, not simply by the new oligarchs and the new crooks of the East, but also from the carpet-baggers of the West. And so, instead of a vision, we had what I believe is the continuing mess that followed the end of the Cold War. I think we're dealing with it now. We may not know it, but it's that kind of sleepwalk. And it is absolutely tragic, in my view, and it's becoming critical that liberal democracy, decent democracy, is being attacked from both sides, from East and West. The United States is not anymore the moral leader of the world, as it was through the Cold War. It is absolutely wrong to imagine that it could be. For Britain, leaving Europe at a time when Europe most needs cohesion, common leadership and so on. To me, that is an utter tragedy. And the idea that we shall have to go cap in hand to Mr. Trump and his associates for trade deals is profoundly humiliating. And I'm ashamed, I think, as many, many Brits are, of what has happened and the way it happened. The interventions from really quite sinister sources that caused the Brexit referendum to be misinterpreted. But I understand absolutely why people vote for Trump. I understand absolutely why they voted for Brexit. But in both cases, their grievances were rightly observed. But the cure that was being offered was completely misunderstood. And it was being offered by the rich, not by the poor. These are revolutions led from above. I was going to ask you, in terms of that, what you make of... of the current tensions with the United States and Russia, what, what, what some are calling a new Cold War. Well, we have. It, I don't think it's a new Cold War. It's dressed that way because people always use the references from history. Something much larger and more disagreeable is happening than a simple confrontation. And it starts, I'm afraid, with the personalities of the leaders. Just remember that Russia has an economy no larger than that of Spain. 
It's not a massive economic power. But in Putin, we have a skilled and totally unprincipled professional spy who ran the East German KGB networks, ran compromise operations, Kompromat from Dresden and so on, knows Europe very well, knows Angela Merkel well, can negotiate with her. She's a strong, sensible woman with whom we can talk. We don't have such a person. And we have in the West a sort of childish Caligula, really. I mean, he hasn't yet dressed himself in the robes of Venus, the goddess of love, or appointed his horse to be chief magistrate of Washington. But we are dealing with uh, an absolutely improbable notion of leadership and very unpleasant cohorts around him. And the danger is, in reality, for grown-ups in politics, that what you've got is a leaderless foreign policy, which can easily be annexed by the CIA. They now have a new right-wing leader, Mr. Pompeo, of the CIA. Uh, so you have the CIA and the military complex, who are around Trump and seem to be the most influential advisers. And it is a pretty awful thing to imagine that your intelligence agency determines foreign policy. And that's what happened during the Cold War, disastrously so often. And it could happen again now, and it is, I suspect, happening already, because of the unsophisticated nature of the leadership and the spinelessness of the Republican Party that put him there. John Le Carre, going back to your new novel, A Legacy of Spies, Peter Gwillem and George Smiley have this kind of post-mortem about Operation Windfall and, and the human loss involved. And Smiley says, we were not pitiless, we were never pitiless, we had the larger pity. Arguably, it was misplaced, certainly it was futile. We know that now, mm. we didn't know that then. Smiley's described as somebody who has the... It's almost described as a shortcoming of seeing the both sides of yes, everything. Yes. You know? Has Smiley finally come to a conclusion about the morality of his life's work? I think he's talking much more about the futility in the sense that we did it, believing that at the end of communism there was a rainbow. There is none. We are unleashing forces we can't control everywhere, whether they're in Silicon Valley, whether they're in these mysterious oligarch operations like the Cambridge Syndicate, whatever the hell they call themselves. These strange interventions from offshore super-rich people who are, this is not a conspiracy theory, it's simply an observation, who are affecting our lives in ways we can't control. And do you take control of Silicon Valley? Do you determine that there is a limit to certain kinds of development? Let me give you an example very, very simple example of consequences. We have been much involved in a charity in Africa, North Africa, on Lake Turkana, following, actually, the Constant Gardener. And a lot of people who were involved in the Constant Gardener came together, some of the film stars and so on, and we put money in and we set up an organisation. So on this Lake Turkana... This is in northern Kenya? Northern Kenya. Lake Turkana, beautiful but absolutely wild spot. And since we'd filmed there and there was a community, we built a school and we found a schoolmaster. Then two things happened. In the bottom, on the lower floor of the school, 
we opened a family planning clinic, which, by ordinary standards, is absolutely essential. This infuriated the Catholic population, mainly white Catholics in their own community, and they had influence and threatened to cut off the water. We'd laid a water pipeline. Now, when they cut off the water, there was great celebration because the water carriers were back in business. And we didn't know that by laying water, we'd actually put probably scores of men out of business and their families too. There are limits in globalization. You have to be able to examine the consequences and to say, no, you can't do that. You will screw up that community. You may have some childish vision developed with your rich friends in Silicon Valley. The effect on the ground is unsustainable. You may not do it. So you can't introduce Uber in Delhi because you will put thousands of rickshaw drivers or whatever they are out of business. But for as long as these random interventions, notionally in the name of humanity, are allowed to take place, with all the availability of modern technology and the huge profits that are available from doing those things, we just screw up the world. I mean, I've seen enough of globalization to understand how painful its effects and how irresponsible they are so often. If Smiley is looking at the world now, he could reasonably ask himself, was it worth that effort? Because Peter probes Smiley about what motivated him, and, and, and mm. he goes through this list of possibilities, yes. world peace, Christianity, capitalism. No to all of England, them. England, yeah. no to all of them. But, he says, I'm a European, yeah. and if I had a mission, it was to Europe. Now, I know this is written now. Yeah. Would Smiley have believed that then? I mean, it was... Well, Eleanor, if he didn't believe it then, he, he does damn well now. does now. <laughs> <laughs> So this is you responding to Brexit. This is me responding to Brexit, and, and Smiley now and then speaks for me. Why not? Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's curious, because, you know, you're, when you were in the Foreign Service, in quotation marks, yes. one of your jobs was to promote Britain's entry into the European common but, market that's right. in the early yes, 60s. I became quite an expert on the EEC and all of that. Yeah, it is very funny. But I've always believed in Europe. I just... Do passion. I mean, it's where my heart is. I, you know, I love my visits to California and my visits to Canada and so on. But Europe's where my heart is. The other thing that you and Smiley have in common is your strong connection to the German language and its yeah. literature as your muse. Do you understand how this particular love came yeah. about and what it gave to you? I ran away from my school when I was sixteen and went to Bern in Switzerland. I wanted to go to Germany. It was very difficult because Germany was still occupied. We're talking of 1949, 48, 49. But I did get to... Uh, I had a, a German lady who, who took me over. And she was my tutor. I was in the university, but I had additional language tuition from her. And she insisted I go to Germany somehow. And I went, I went and I saw both Bergen-Belsen and Dachau concentration camps when... You could still smell death. And that made a profound effect on me. I also started to make the acquaintance of humanistic, really nice Germans, people I, I trusted. You couldn't paint everybody with the same brush, which had been the notion, I'm afraid, during the war. I had had 
as a schoolboy before I ran away from my school. I'd had one very good teacher who was the German teacher, and that made a big difference. But I wanted to lose my British identity at that callow age of 16 or so. And I really adopted German culture as my second home, so to speak. And that's been with me always. And, and that doesn't mean I'm soppy about it. I mean, I, I have, so to speak, shared the evolution of Germany. I, I became, as a young diplomat in Bonn, that was still only 15 years after war's end, and I was infuriated by the presence of old Nazis in government and in the law and in, in universities and all over the place. I mean, denazification as a concept was quite impossible to to operate when, when the name of the game was anti-communism. And it was part of what I wrote about. But your love of German culture was quite separate from that. Yes, I, I mean, you know, Germany and Britain, well into the early 20th century, were natural allies in Europe and, and natural partners in cultural exploits and examination. You know, some of our biggest historians of that period, like Carlyle and so on, they were... They were hand in glove with, with their German colleagues. We only went apart in 1914, really, as nations. And there are all sorts of things about Germany which still infuriate me, as well about my own country or any other country. But just at the moment, at this period in our history, it is absolutely essential that this endless anti-German claptrap that goes on in tabloid papers and so on ceases, you know, the Brits feel warm when they're reminded that they stood alone for the first two years of the war, three years of the war, uh, and, and they, they fantasise that they won it alone. It was absolutely ludicrous. They didn't. You know, we weren't very good soldiers, comparatively, and we were rescued by the Commonwealth to a great extent. Something's too easily forgotten, and then by the Americans, and finally, above all, by the Russians. There's ambiguity in the title of your new novel, A Legacy of Spies. Legacy is, is a neutral word. I mean, it could be positive, it could mm. be negative. How do you mean it here? I think in terms of the story, it's negative. It, it means that the past doesn't go away, better look out, and the past come back to haunt you. And it's that kind of legacy. It's a, a sinner's legacy, perhaps. But I don't think we were sinners. But uh, to be held to account, that was... What was going to happen? Past came back to claim them. Let's look at your legacy and see whether it, whether you come out of it well or not. And does it allude to your own literary legacy? Yeah, it's it's odd. I haven't thought about that too much, and I've faced these awful questions about where do I think I stand, and. Um, that's, it's, 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 not feet, it's, not, no, it's not your job. It's not your job to answer that one. It's not my job. I absolutely agree. I'm not no. part of the critical process. The legacy of life for me is the wonder of having kind of come out butter side up after a whole lot of setbacks and missteps and all those things. All the boring things are so wonderful. Family and um, health and and those things, and when the black dog comes, I just think I should be so lucky, really. And that's how it is. I have to ask you, when, when we last talked in uh, 2013, at the end of our conversation, you said this was going to be the last interview yes. you were going to be giving. And, and indeed, I did, and I've said it not only to you, Eleanor, but I didn't expect this book to happen. And it ends a canon, 
in my work. And it comes, I'm about to be 86, so it comes, as you might say, in my late youth. <laughs> and it could easily be my last book. And I discovered really such a, there is such interest in Smiley and the subject. And for some reason, he touches a nerve, a popular nerve. And I thought I would speak to him and probably, in a way, have a proper leave-taking. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. John Le Carré at his home in London in 2017. A Legacy of Spies is available in paperback from Penguin. He subsequently published Agent Running in the Field. John Le Carré died in 2020. He was 89. His posthumous novel, Silverview, came out a year later. And most recently, his letters titled A Private Spy. Writers and Company is produced by Sandra Rabinovich, who's also senior producer, and by Katie Swales. Contributing producer this week was Susan Feldman. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, one of the most popular and critically acclaimed authors of her generation, Zadie Smith, on her essays about writing, her addiction to reading, and her family. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.